Please uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. You've noticed it's a communion Sunday, and next Sunday will also be a communion Sunday, and the Sunday after that will also be a communion Sunday. We're taking three messages to finish out 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through the end, and it's all about the Lord's Supper. It's all about communion. And it seems fitting for each one of these messages that we go from the message right into our demonstration of that and our participation in the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're doing uh, today. From the mess after the message, we'll go right into that um, and ob observing that together. So we're coming out of a rare section in First Corinthians where Paul had occasion to praise the church in Corinth. You don't see that as a theme in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul praises them. But look back up at verse 2. Looked at this a little bit last week. Paul starts off, now I praise you. And it's just not often you see that in this 16-chapter letter. It's often Paul correcting them or even just flat-out rebuking them. But uh, he's taking on a more familiar tone now as we start in verse 17 and continue on uh, through the rest of the letter, where you see in verse 17 again where Paul says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. So he's back onto the familiar tone we've heard in, throughout the letter so far. The corporate worship gatherings in Corinth were just mostly a mess. That's what we're learning through this book. They were mostly a mess, and Paul is going to be addressing one of the major ways it was a mess as we begin this section of the letter, verses 17 through the end of this chapter. And consider in your own experience... Hopefully this hasn't happened to you too many times, but have you ever visited a church gathering, a worship service, and then left feeling really discouraged by the things that you heard and saw? It's happened to me before. There have been churches I visited, and I thought, oh, wow, um, that song was really bad. I can't believe they sang that. Or uh, that interaction was really weird and seemed like imbalanced or whatever it may be, just kind of go on and on. Uh, there can be many things in the gathering that can discourage you, and some of it rightly so. If they're doing something as a church that is unbiblical, if they're doing something that's wrong, it can just be very discouraging. And that seems to be the type of church that the church in Corinth was, where if you were to visit it, you would walk away feeling really discouraged. Even the way that they observed the Lord's Supper, even the way they did communion, as we call it today, you would just walk away feeling like that was wrong. That wasn't right, the way they handled that. And so Paul's addressing that issue with them here, and he cannot fully pra praise them as a church due to a variety of issues, and he's calling them out on the Lord's Supper issue here. Notice that it says, look in verse 18, when it says, when you come together as a church, that's the context of the issue, when they come together as a church, it could literally read when you are together in the assembly, when you're in assembly together. So it's talking about the corporate worship gathering. And notice it doesn't say when you come together at church or when you gather in church or in a church. That's become a pretty common way that we say things, and uh, it's good for us to remind ourselves that we're not at church right now in a sense. The New Testament never speaks that way because the church is the people, right? Now, we are, of course, gathering for corporate worship now, but this building isn't a church. The church is... Who, who is the church, Wayne? The church is... 
The people, very good. Wayne's always good about reminding me of that. The church is the people. The church isn't a building. The church is the people. And so when he says, when you come together as a church, it's good perspective. And it's a continuation of the context that was started back in verse 2. There were things that they were doing together that was praiseworthy, and now there's something they're doing together that is not praiseworthy. He praises them for one aspect of their corporate worship and then cannot praise them for several aspects of their corporate worship. And there are several issues. Notice that he says uh, in, again, verse 18, in the first place. He says, in the first place, I have this issue with you. But now look at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 34, the last sentence of the chapter. He talks about the Lord's Supper all leading up to this last statement of the chapter where he says, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So Paul has several things in mind. He's apparently heard several things about this gathered assembly that's just off. It's just wrong. And he says, for this case, in the first place, this is an issue. The result of their actions is divisions. Again, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And he says that he heard this somewhere. Where is Paul hearing this? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul was talking about their divisions, and he was talking on a, a different type of division that was happening. But he heard that from Chloe's people, and we talked about that almost a year ago now when we started the book of 1 Corinthians. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary in the book of 1 Corinthians. But it was Chloe's people who were delivering messages to Paul. We don't know a lot about Chloe. We don't know a lot about her people, but we know that they were Christians who were delivering news to Paul. And he says that he heard that divisions exist, and in part, he believed it, he said. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he tacks on to the end because there definitely were issues. It wasn't like maybe there were, maybe there weren't. I mean, there were issues happening. There were divisions happening in the church. So perhaps Paul struggled to believe the degree to which the divisions were happening. Perhaps Paul was just softening his tone a little bit as he was confronting them. But he says, there are divisions among you, and when you come together, this is the end of verse 17, when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. That would be a difficult statement to hear from an apostle in God's church. When you meet together, it's for the worse. Things have to be pretty bad for people to say, Oh, if you go to church, you're going to come out worse for it, <laughs> right? And there I just used the phrase, go to church. That was a test. I'm sure you all caught me. <clears throat> well, he says, not for the better. Of course, the word better has to do with something that has an advantage, that offers an advantage, something that builds up, something that's constructive. And the word better is always comparative, too. It's, you're looking at two options, and one has more of an advantage over the other. It's always compared to another thing. Whereas worse, of course, is the inferior option. It's less than something. It's not ideal. It's not constructive, but it's destructive. If you're doing something that's for the worse for your life, it's going to be destructive and not constructive. So when we consider these words of Paul about it being perhaps, it could be for the better, it could be for the worse, this gathering together, well, who's better and who's worse? Who is this the worse for? I think that's an appropriate question to seek to answer. Their gathering was worse. Well, worse for whom? Well, it seems to me that there are three ways we can look at this. One, it would be worse for the glory of God. They weren't honoring God rightly in what they were doing, and 
seeking to glorify God by obeying Him and by living out gospel love together, sacrificial love. They weren't honoring God. They weren't glorifying God in the way that they were called to do so with their worship. So I'd say that's the first way it's worse and the most important way that it's worse. The second is that it was for their own personal worse. When they came together and they gathered in their assembly and they were doing these things that were wrong, it was not for their growth. It was actually a hindrance to their growth. When this church gathered together, they were actually going backwards in their spiritual development, which of course is the opposite of why you're here, I hope. I hope you're here that we would all grow together. Well, they weren't growing. It was for their worse. And then thirdly, it was the worse off for their witness in the community. It was worse for God's glory from that perspective. It was worse from their personal growth, and it was worse for the glory of God. It wasn't building those things up. It was actually peeling those things back. We have to realize and embrace that all that we do together as a body, as one of God's local churches, all that we do is either toward building up these things or toward tearing them down. Everything we do. And we need to heed these words that we need to meet for the better, not for the worse. Because Corinth got to the point where people were worse off for gathering. That's a place we never want to be, right? (laughs) That's a place we would seek to avoid in any way that depends on us. We want to avoid that. We need to be vigilant that we always meet for the advantage of one another, for the building up of one another, that it's always for the better. Because the way that the Corinthians were meeting was to cause divisions. That word again in verse 18. It's the word schismata in the Greek. It's where we get our word schism. Schisms were existing among this church. And this is, like I mentioned, the same theme that we see in chapter 1. Remember when Paul was going off? I hear some of you will say, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas or I'm of Christ. They had all these different teams. They had picked their leader and they were forming different groups within the church. Well, there's a different reason for the divisions now, perhaps the same underlying reason, but Paul's talking about the divisions from a different angle. On the one hand, of course, chapter 1, they're picking and choosing apostles and teachers in the church as their leaders of their teams. But on the other hand, as he's mentioning here, they're advancing their egos through the Lord's Supper. They're advancing their self-interest through the venue of communion. How awful. And it all seems to stem in this particular case from their different social classes. We live in an in a environment here that's quite a bit different than it was in Corinth. There were obvious social class differences in Corinth where you had many believers who were wealthy and well-off and had lots of resources, and you had many believers who had next to nothing. Remember, this was before The Christians were building their own buildings and meeting like we are this morning. They were going from house to house during this time. And certainly those with more money, with bigger houses, they were able to offer people to gather. There were certain ways that houses were designed then were with different meeting rooms. And it seems like that's what they would do when they would gather together from the indications we have in the text. But what was happening in Corinth was the rich were shaming the poor through their gatherings One social class was being shamed by another, and the body was torn. God's glory, their growth, the community's good was all hampered. It was all hindered by their getting together. 
And that's what division does, doesn't it? Division in the church tears down each one of those things. But astoundingly, on the heels of these statements, look at verse 19. He says, for there must also be factions among you, or it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, isn't that wild? Here we are approaching this idea of a church body being torn, all these factions starting up and how that's bad, that's for the worse. And then then Paul says it's necessary. It must be this way. Now, that's kind of wild to me. As someone who never wants to endure a church split, who never wants to endure any type of divisions or factions within the same body, how could Paul say that they're necessary? Let's consider this. If you're using a King James Version, you'll notice that instead of the word factions, it says heresies. There must be heresies among you, which is an interesting translation in our day and age, the way we use that word. But really what factions are, they're they're groups that stem from anti-Christian opinions. Anti-Christian opinions, which you could call heresies. The opinions give birth to subgroups or sects that distract from the mission of the church. These opinions bubble up and they're latched onto by different groups within the church and they compete against each other to see which idea is right or best. And they lose sight of the whole mission of the church. And Paul says that when this happens, it exposes the approved. These things are necessary, again, verse 19, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. How do factions and divisions expose the approved? Well, for the approved, it's in a passive sense. The approved aren't in the church looking to cause divisions. They're not. They're not the ones seeking out the divisions. But when they're caught up in the divisions of the church, when they're caught up in the factions, it becomes evident who they are by how they react to the situation, how they handle the situation. If you're wondering who the approved are, you could call them the mature, the tested, or the pure They're the ones who are approved by God. That's Paul's sense here. He's not saying those who are approved by men in any way, but those who are approved by God. And they are the true Christians in the fellowship. They're the actual believers that are in the fellowship. Look again with me back in chapter 9, the last verse of chapter 9, same book, 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul wrote when he was talking about disciplining his body, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's our same word as approved, except the antonym of it. It could say unapproved. Or in our text today, it could say the qualified will become evident. It's the same word. What was Paul saying in chapter 9? He was saying that I discipline my body so that I won't become disqualified from the Christian race. We talked through that. What's at the end of the race that Paul is running? Well, it's the crown for all believers. It's his inheritance of heaven. It's a warning passage about being disciplined in the Christian life. And Paul goes on to say here in our text today, chapter 11, that those who are approved will become evident through the factions. He's not saying that there are approved and unapproved Christians. If you're a Christian, you're approved. He's not saying that there are some, uh, some in the uh, congregation who are spiritual Christians and some who are carnal Christians. 
he would just be creating more division by making that classification, wouldn't he? Because then they would all be fighting about which one's which. (laughs) Are you spiritual or are you carnal? But Paul is saying through these types of factions, we're seeing who the real Christians are. And when he says that it's necessary in verse 19 that these things happen, he's not going back on what he said in verse 17 when he said it's for the worse. Because we should know by now in our lives that there are some worse things that are also necessary, aren't they? (laughs) There are things in our lives that we would consider are for the worse, but they're also necessary. The approved and the unapproved exist together in the church, and through events like these, the approved become evident. Just as Jesus taught that there are the wheat and the tares that grow up together, and then in the end, they'll all be exposed. Paul's using that same line of thinking here in the church. You might think, what's the worst thing that could happen to a church? Church split. And I would agree in a lot of ways. (laughs) But Paul's telling us here, too, that factions are necessary. And we have to wrestle with that, especially when we're living through it. And we're given one of the major ways that this church had begun to split as he starts talking about the Lord's Supper in verse 20. He says, I'll read 20 to 22, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another's drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. The same statement that Paul opened with in verse 17 about not praising them, he closes verse 22 with. The Corinthians were meeting together under the guise of unity and communion, unity in the Lord's Supper. But they actually had selfish motives. They were actually abusing the Lord's Supper by saying that's what they were doing and then going on to live like they were. Now, the Lord's Supper will be defined in detail next week, but just as a baseline understanding for today, and the way it applies to our text, is we need to recognize that communion is a display of our unity in the faith. The word communion, you can think of the word commune or community that comes from it, it means being together. It means being assembled and being in unity. Well, that's what it is. It's a display of unity in our faith. And we know some of what it looked like for the Corinthians when they gathered together. Again, they didn't have a church building like we do today. And it's just a totally different way to put yourself in their mind and how they went about going about having the Lord's Supper. But we have indicators in text, in the text of Scripture and in history of what that looked like. First, notice that he says in verse 20 that this is when they met together. It was when they assembled. And I know that might seem really obvious, like, well, yeah, that's what communion is. It's when you all get together, right? But in our day and age, especially in the day and age of a lot of people consuming content online, it stands to to be said that you can't really have biblical communion without being in a Christian community physically. It's not something that we can do individually on our own. It's something that we do when we meet together. It's for the church. And... When we observe the Lord's table together, it's either for blessing or for judgment. It's not something that we do to earn favor with God, and we're going to see that in the Corinthian situation. 
just because they were doing it, that didn't mean that God was blessing them. It wasn't a work that they would do to earn God's approval. But they were actually meeting together and observing communion together for God's judgment. They didn't receive His blessing just because they partook of the supper together. And we discover as we examine what it was like for them to go about eating this meal that it wasn't exactly the way that we do it today. You know that when we have communion, we have uh, a little bit of juice and usually a really tiny bit of bread. Now, I've mentioned this before, and it bears repeating that we have really good bread compared to a lot of places. I've had communion in some churches where it's like this tiny thing that looks like it came from a packing peanut factory or something, and you put it on your tongue, and it just dissolves, and that's all it is, which there's freedom in how to observe it, right? But I like our bread, okay? Mike does a great job. Uh, Today, we don't have Mike's bread, so just a warning on that, but uh, I really appreciate that Mike does that for us when we get together. Well, in in Corinth, and especially throughout the early church, you can read about it in the book of Acts, they weren't exactly doing communion that way. It said that they met from house to house, they were breaking bread even daily. And from what we see, there were fuller meals involved, often potluck-style meals where people would bring their supper to the gathering, and they would have what was called an agape feast or a love feast. These were really popular in the early church. And uh, they lasted for a few hundred years. They would have their love feast together where they would bring their meals. And then with their meals all together, they would also observe the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, while they were all there. And there's a place that we can see in Scripture where these feasts are talked about, and that's in the book of Jude. It's the second to last book of the Bible. And in Jude, verse 4, it's only one chapter, Jude 4, the author of the book tells us, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, talking about creeping into the church, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, you can kind of get a flavor here, too, of why factions are necessary. He says that these people deny Jesus, but they're unnoticed. See that in the text? Unnoticed, but they deny Jesus. So we can get more of uh, an idea of what Paul's talking about, that these factions will expose such people. Now, verse 12, same, same book, in Jude verse 12, it says about these people, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. See the phrase there, love feast? When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. We'll see that in our text today. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about those people, and rightly so. They are wolves in the church, and they are hidden reefs in the love feasts, the agape feasts that the early church observed. Now, as we study some of what we have from the early church, one of the main texts is outside of the Bible. It's called the Didache. How many of you have ever heard of the Didache? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. The the Didache was basically a record of the early customs of the church, of the first century church. And it wasn't written necessarily by the apostles, but by those who were discipled by the apostles. It comes from the first century. And in the Didache, when they talked about the Lord's table, when they talked about observing the supper and having communion together, 
they use the phrase Eucharist. Now, maybe you've heard that in some other settings, the Eucharist. I think Roman Catholics still call communion the Eucharist. And that word just means thanksgiving. It's the thanksgiving meal that the church would observe as a part of their love feasts. They would come together for these big meals in homes, and they would have a thanksgiving time where they observed what the Lord Jesus has instructed us to observe. Now, what's interesting about the instruction that we find in the Didache is that baptism was required to partake of communion in the first century. Uh, Just a note to throw out there about what they did. And so these love feasts would be where communion would often be observed, but right motives in observing communion were increasingly rare, especially in Corinth. It became rarer and rarer for people to have right motives in those meals. And we see that in our text today. In verse 20 again, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So because the motives became increasingly wrong, increasingly selfish, increasingly uh, egotistical and arrogant, more and more people throughout the early church started speaking against the love feast as a whole and saying, let's not get together for this big feast and observe communion there. Let's, let's have communion elsewhere, and let's make it more focused so that we're unable to do some of these things that we've been doing in showing ourselves to be gluttons and selfish. If you read Augustine's work, Augustine, a pretty famous name through church history, he spoke against the love feast. He said, communion's great, it's what we're supposed to do, but the love feast we shouldn't do. And in fact, there was an early church council, the Synod of Laodicea, and they said this, it is not permitted to hold love feast. This was in 364. Can you throw that up there, Walker? In 364, they just came out and said, you know what? We're just done. (laughs) It is not permitted to hold love feasts, as they are called in the Lord's houses or churches, nor to eat and to spread couches in the house of God. It came to that point in the early church where they said, we just need to stop this as a whole. Because apparently what was going on in Corinth spread to other love feasts as well, where it was just getting out of hand. Because the love feast became a platform for exposing people who didn't have faith, people who didn't serve the other social classes. They weren't coming to these love feasts to display Christian love. They were coming there with selfish motives to fill up and even to mock the poor among them. The unapproved put their self-centeredness on display. When you had the church gathered, and you know that the early church was very diverse, you had men and women, you had Jew and Gentile, you had slave and free. When they came together, it was kind of like the haves versus have-nots. And the haves, at least in Corinth, more and more were showing off that they had lots of food. They would bring their own supper and eat it in front of the poor while the poor went hungry. It's pretty amazing instruction when you consider the social classes of that time and that Paul says, well, look, the rich need to serve the poor. The rich need to stop focusing on themselves so much and to spread what they have and to share what they have. Gordon Fee wrote this, in that context, these words must have served as a kind of jolt from heaven, and we need to try to hear them as such so as to appreciate the truly radical nature of the gospel the apostle was proclaiming in a very highly class-conscious culture. The haves or the unapproved among them sought to serve themselves first 
and only, though there was plenty of food. It seems as though the rich would have their food and they would eat it among themselves right in front of the poor. Look again at verse 20. And notice the subtle jab that Paul makes here with his words. He says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, but in verse 21, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. So they were doing it in the name of the Lord and saying, we're gathered together eating this food as the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, no, that's not his, that's yours. (laughs) That's not the Lord's Supper, that's your supper because you're doing it wrongly, with wrong motives. It's explicitly not the Lord's Supper. And by living this way, they were revealing their disdain for the body, especially for the poor, that they would serve themselves only while others went hungry. At the end of verse 21, you've got one who's hungry and another who has gorged himself to the point of being drunk. So I love that Paul's response to that in verse 22, his one-word response is, what? <laughs> now, we don't know what tone he used when he said that, but I think that's an option, right? What? What are you doing? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? If you're going to gorge yourself, if you're going to eat to your fill, why would you not do that at home? Why would you wait until there's a gathering at someone else's home and go there and then put your richness on display and mock the poor? That's his question. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? By doing that, when we gather, by showing self-interest over and against serving one another, what are we doing but shaming the church of God? When we show that ourselves are more important than anyone else, we're despising the others among us. There were some that Paul wrote about, I think it's in the book of Philippians, where he says that their gods are their stomachs. May that never be said of us. Let us not worship our appetites but let us seek to serve one another, even and especially the poor among us. The gathering, when they met to observe the Lord's Supper, was for a display of unity and a display of submission and love to one another and to the Lord Jesus. They had made communion or the Lord's Supper an individualistic and egotistical and self-serving event, the exact opposite of what it's supposed to reflect. When we observe communion and we remember the body and blood of our Lord, we are remembering the greatest act of selfless love of all time, aren't we? And if we gather with motives that are so self-serving or we think it's all about us, we're doing the exact opposite in our hearts that we're doing outwardly. And Paul says that shouldn't be. So as we take communion, we need to focus on our common confession of faith the gospel of Jesus Christ, to focus on His love and to focus on the applications of His love in the body. Because if we're focused on ourselves, we're going to create divisions. If we're focused on ourselves, we're going to shame the church. But if we get together, laying our own personal interests aside for the sake of the body and seeking to cherish, to remember, to uphold the love of God found in the cross and to live that out among ourselves. We're going to be built up in so many ways. It's for the better when we do that. It's for the advantage, for the glory of God, for our own personal growth, and for our witness in the community.